Well, hello and welcome to episode 140 of the 1099 for the week of March 26, 2018. I am your sick and nasally host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the founder of the video game documentary company, Noclip, a former host and editor at GameSpot, a former trending gamer nominee, and a new-ish Maryland resident, also someone who is on a lot of drugs like me, Danny O'Dwyer. Danny, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing good. Are we on the recreational drugs or are we on the, oh shit, I just got some teeth work done drugs? I think I we should leave it anymore. ambiguous. Like, we could talk okay. about your dental work and say, like, yo, that's what it was actually on, but what if we just leave it like... we? We got here. We're like, let's just do some drugs right before this podcast because people, that's what the kids are demanding. The I, new I drugs did a, podcast. Yeah, I did, a, I did a tweet two days ago where I was getting a pizza from my wife from Pizza Hut. And, I, and on the way, I was like, I don't want pizza. That's too unhealthy. I'll get Subway. That's slightly less healthy. Yeah. And on the way home, I just took a picture for her, actually, but I tweeted it later, of the Subway and the pizza on the, like, passenger side seat. And then I took a picture of the heat, the, like, the seat heater set to high <laughs> and... And like there was, it was a 50-50 split between people who thought that I was making a joke about heating the pizza, which is what I was actually doing, uh, and people thinking that I was making a joke about being high and going out and getting a lot of junk food. Uh, two things. So, I was on the, the second camp. I thought you were making a joke about being high and just being like, I got this pizza, but then I saw Subway and I'm like, maybe just both. Uh, Dude, if, if I like to get high on the weekdays, I wouldn't have moved from California to Maryland. <laughs> well, no, it's why you're on Patreon now, because like you're your own boss. You can get high whenever you want and just eat Subway and Pizza Hut at the exact same time. You, you mentioned like, oh, it's slightly healthier. I remember when I was a kid and I saw all those uh, Subway commercials about losing weight, which, boy, they don't age well now because of who <laughs> right. did them. But yeah. I remember convincing myself that like, oh my God, these giant foot long subs with all of this bread have to be healthy for me, right? So like that was the Gosh. weird, as a pudgy child, I'm like, I'm going to lose weight by eating giant sandwiches with all of this like <laughs> white bread and mayo and stuff like that. I'm like, he did. I can do it too. So totally. marketing works. That's really what we're learning right now. Uh, do you, you mentioned California and moving. Do you miss California at all? Like, do you enjoy having the seasons moving out into the, the Northeast? Has it been a good transition, bad transition? It's a, it's like a, it grass is always greener, man. Yeah. Like I've moved country and city of so many times now, um, that there's always parts you miss when you leave them behind, and there's always parts you enjoy that are new and exciting. Um, I really love the changing of the seasons, but the flip coin to that is that myself, and my wife moved here in late October, so <sighs> we kind of got the, we got like the fall was beautiful, and then winter was rough like yeah. winter's winter here was like cold and we live we live kind of in the woods a bit so it's a lot of kind of skeleton ass looking trees at the back garden um <laughs> but it's uh it started to get nice again we had it's a it's really inconsistent here the weather in maryland we had one day where it was like low 70s so like i don't know 17 18 uh, celsius yeah and then we had snow two days ago like just it flips all over the place so i'm looking forward to spring but um yeah there's parts of you know city life i miss i lived in oakland and now i live in outside annapolis like I'm not, i don't even live in annapolis i live in the countryside outside of it so um difference you know pluses and minuses but i'm really happy we came here because especially for work it made more sense to be away from a place i didn't have to pay the crazy living costs of living in california and here i get to have a big studio and uh, access to all the east coast developers now yeah, it really is about as diametrically opposed to what you were doing before as possible in terms of weather and conditions, stuff like that. I mean, I lived in Pennsylvania for the first 
22 years of my life and that right. weather that switches i understand it could be like 71 day and the next day you're shoveling for an hour or you're turning your car on 15 minutes early just to thaw out the front of it <laughs> i know nothing about ireland in terms of weather have you dealt with snow very much in your life no, it's weird you ask right now, though, because there was a crazy blizzard last week in Ireland, which uh, there was like over a foot of snow, which has never oh happened in Ireland in my lifetime. When I was growing up, we maybe had three or four instances where we got like an inch of snow and then like the whole city, like the whole country came to a close and everyone, you know, went out making the world's weirdest snowmen, which were covered in <laughs> muck from all the, because <laughs> there was hardly any snow there. Um, so not really. Now, Ireland's weather is is fairly mild. It's It's... You know, we have the Gulf Stream, which sort of warms us a little bit during the uh, the winter and summer. So the winters tend to be quite wet, but like not that cold. Like it, it doesn't drop below freezing too often. Yep. And then in the summertime, it can actually get really beautiful. So springs in Ireland are gorgeous. And then in the summertime, um, it gets hot, but it doesn't get like you're not pushing a hundred like like over here. So that's why the country is so green because it's it's never too dry and it's never. You know, there's always at least a bit of water and there's always a good bit of sunshine, too. Did you get to travel a bit and like visit other states on your journey from California to Maryland? Because I'm guessing from a distance, you know, you think of the U.S. maybe a specific way, but you don't realize how insanely different each state is. Like from state to state, it feels like going from country to country. So did you get a chance to see a whole bunch of different things or did you fly over and buy a whole bunch of stuff once you got there? Yeah, unfortunately, on that particular trip, we, myself and my wife have two cats, so oh boy. we made the direct flight as quickly as possible. We flew straight into D.C., uh, where her family's over in, in Virginia, so we, we stayed there for a while. But I, the way I've explored most of the states has been through doing the no-clip docs, actually, and probably and the GameSpot stuff, too. Um, like, a good example would be we drove, actually, through... Uh, um, uh, Pennsylvania on the way up to Canada for our latest one. We we went to London, Ontario uh, to talk to Digital Extremes about Warframe um, and drove up the whole way through like New York State and, and PA as well. And it was awesome just being able to get off the beaten track, especially. We we drove up, is it the Susquehanna River? Is that, I don't know how you pronounce it. That sounds it, right. I, yeah, that's how to pronounce so, it. I should know this stuff as like someone that. who, again, lived in PA all my life. But yeah, I'll, <laughs> right. I'll prove that. So, like it was fantastic and seeing like small communities and things like that because I grew up in the southeast of Ireland man like Ireland's a remote country already kind of it's not very connected um, and when I was growing up especially it was far more sort of backcountry uh, and and hard to get to places than it is now because now the EU pumped a bunch of money in and we've got good like motorways running between different cities and stuff but like I kind of lived in a in a like the fifth largest city in a country and we had 40,000 people so it's yeah. you know it's and I didn't live in the city part either so it, it I'm used to that type of thing and I like the realness of people like that and I I love the flip side too I lived in London for four years before I moved to to um, San Francisco and Oakland um, but I've always been more of a sort of a salt of the earth um, um, meeting people that way in like dive bars and small towns. So whenever we go on trips, we try and like meet up with locals if, if they're patrons and stuff, especially. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a fun way to, to see the, uh, the, the country. And I'm looking forward to doing more of that East Coast stuff um, with no clip projects in the near future. Yeah, I mean, East Coast is fun. It is a massive change, but it seems like something that, like you mentioned, you would enjoy. And it's funny. I've I've listened to you a lot on you know GameSpot videos, Giant Bomb stuff over the years, and I always it always seemed like you were someone who, when you were younger like me, you were always reaching for GameSpot. There was that feeling of, this is what I want to do, this is what I know I want to do, so I'm going to do whatever it takes 
to get there. And you did. You eventually did get to GameSpot, became this major figure at GameSpot. After landing that job, moving, starting to build your name there, was it, and of course the answer is yes to, was it tough leaving, but how difficult was it to basically say, this thing I've always wanted, I'm now going in a different direction. Still games, still video, but I am actually going to leave the place I was reaching for for the longest time and take a risk somewhere else. Was there... Was there this weird sense of, man, I've wanted this years and years and years beforehand, and now I'm actually leaving? Yeah, there was, and it, and it's 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 taken a bit of distance for me to sort of really contemplate exactly what I was feeling when that all happened. I think I think there was a sort of a sadness to leave, but I, I think it was I think it was more of a sadness that I didn't achieve there what I really wanted to, or maybe like a, a maybe an ounce of regret that in a way I felt like I was leaving a site that maybe wasn't as strong as it had been when I arrived. Mm. And that's like difficult to say. Like I, I, I don't like saying that because I have a lot of friends who work there and I and I love a lot of the work that's coming, coming out of there as well. But I do feel that the sort of, the, the, the odds were against mainstream sites when I arrived and yeah. it's only become more difficult for them. So I think that you have to really hustle and, diverse like change the type of work you're doing to make yourself relevant in the 2018 video game landscape and i think over the time i was there i was definitely pushing as hard in the other direction of what a lot of the mainstream sites were doing mostly not because i thought that they should go in that direction like i don't think sites like ign and GameSpot should just purely make op-ed videos <laughs> but I, I was doing it kind of to try and balance out what was going on because so much of what games reporting had become was was making clickbait video type stuff or you know viral video which is just another word for clickbait or and and sort of pumping out as much stuff and getting it out as fast as you can and i love that there's elements of that stuff i really really like as well but at a certain stage i felt like games coverage in the mainstream was turning into a bit of a factory job and they were you could get anyone to do it and uh, i was trying to maybe maybe break some ground in the opposite direction a bit um ultimately like i i feel really fortunate for the time i spent at gamespot uk and the time i spent at gamespot in san francisco like my last my sort of dreams would have been to eventually get my hands on the reins of that website yeah. in some form, be it in the video or, or something else. Um, like, I didn't have small goals. Like, I felt like, like, fuck it, man. By the time I managed to get to America from Ireland, uh, like, through England and all of that work, and, and I was like, fuck it, the sky's the limit. Like, this, I might as well, you know, swing, go for a Hail Mary at this age or swing yeah. for the fences because who fucking cares? So I think at a, at a certain stage, I just realized, like, okay, that's not going to happen. Like... The way that the game's press is moving, the way that GameSpot was moving, and the sort of more radical, I feel like, plans that I would have had for what we were doing weren't going to match up. Um, because ultimately, what was more important to me than profit or keeping a massive team employed was making good work. Um, so maybe I'm not the right person to run a site like that. <laughs> uh, so I, 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 I just I took a step back and I thought, like, what's the best thing to do for me and for games coverage or for the people who care about games coverage the way i do and i thought oh well it's it's to step away and let gamespot be gamespot and you know try and make something new and beautiful that like people the way i was excited about looking at gamespot when i was young that maybe people would be excited about it and i'm not sure if we're there yet but um i'm, I'm fairly happy with how noclip's gone in the past 18 months 
Yeah, it's hard to have, I guess. I understand the personal regret maybe of not seeing GameSpot off in the way you want it to. But like you mentioned, it is an industry-wide change that I don't think could really be shifted at this point. Like GameSpot is a different place than it used to be. And for a lot of people, that's good. For maybe people like us who came up watching Ryan Davis and Jeff Kurtzman and Brad Shoemaker and all Mm. those people, that GameSpot. And then you see that next transition, which for me always felt like, it was Kevin Van Ord, Brennan Sinclair. It was Tom McShay. It was it was that group. But then games coverage has changed where, like you mentioned, it, it felt more factory. It felt more you can kind of slot people in to do these things instead of this personality-driven, opinion-based thing that was going on. And that eventually became Giant Bomb. But yeah, I there's still this... I was in the the, the GameSpot review freelancer pool with a lot of different great people, Kevin at awesome. being my editor, and just remember that and being like, this is incredible. This is what I always wanted. And then I think it was a lot of the layoffs happened with, like again, Tom McShay, Carolyn Pett, a lot of people like that. And I'm right. looking yeah. at GameSpot having this weird moment of like, me personally, this is weird because I've always seen this site in this certain light and held held to a certain standard and i don't think the standard is lower or anything like that but it's different and i think it was coming to grips with how different that was and for you that must have been even more major because you're involved in it and you are seeing it change around you i mean was it was it weird watching a lot of the people who you had maybe grown up looking up to leave the company because just the way games coverage was changing yeah, it was that that all sucks. I was lucky, obviously I wasn't one of the ones that was let go. Um and I hadn't been there long when that had happened. Yeah. So and also like there was I could you could kind of see that sea change coming a bit and I really tried as much as I could to try and like get those people on the on our weekly show and like you know demonstrate that they were they were able to play in this new type of games coverage and they were able to so when a lot of those folks including a lot of the the backroom video team who people like ryan mcdonald who i looked up to for years suddenly you know people whose names were on the credits of on the spot for years when i was back home watching them in ireland werner goff and benito gonzalez and all of these amazing people when they were they were all suddenly axed it was like well okay like Maybe you want the you know company to go in a different direction, but we need to know what that is. And I don't think anyone ever knew. I think the 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 we lost a lot of the culture of what that site was, the sort yeah. of je ne sais quoi, which which keeps people coming back. And ultimately, what keeps what keeps keeps people coming back to any sort of editorial website, which is basically any website where people are producing content with their faces and names on it, is those faces and names. And I think there was a sort of a lack of understanding of the importance of that, which I had only had as as being on the opposite end of that um, of that transaction of being a, a user and a fan of GameSpot. And, like, the proof is in the pudding. When you look at, like, the, the websites that have sprung up around mainstream game sites and been successful, it's ones that have embraced that, like Rooster Teeth, like people who have who have known that their communities and having these sort of, these, these loud you know, evangelists within the gaming community who will bring in other people to watch and consume the stuff like the hotspot or on the spot or whatever it was, like, that's super, super important. And that's like, that's a form of clickbait, right? <laughs> but like, but it's not, it's it's hard to see the analytics for it. And if you don't have the analytics and a lot of our game sites now and websites are based on sort of that type of statistical work. There's a lot of stuff, you know, there's a reason why there's two different forms of research, one that's about numbers and one that's about getting boots on the ground and talking to people and figuring it out. Like, 
there's a reason why there's those two types of market research. So we were totally blind on the other one, and I was screaming about it. So it was really weird when all that stuff happened. Um, a part of me felt like, uh, you know, I was powerless to do anything about it. Um, and I think what happened sort of was that myself and Andy Bauman, who was my creative partner for at GameSpot on The Point and a lot of that stuff for many years, and a couple of other people, we just sort of put our, our uh, I don't know, uh, head to the grindstone and just thought, look, we'll make the type of work that we think is important. We'll work really hard to get eyeballs on it. If it doesn't get eyeballs, then it's not it's not important. Uh, we can't justify it, but if we can, we're going to keep fucking justifying it, and yeah. we're going to try and build some sort of rapport with the audience. Um, ultimately, that's why I got to GameSpot US, was I made a show in GameSpot UK, which immediately connected with people. Um, when I was in GameSpot US and left and started Noclip, that was the thing that was my su- success in that respect as well. So I do think it's something that's really important for video game websites. I just think it's critically undervalued. And also, in the world of ego, where there are like, you know, there's power struggles within those types of organizations sometimes it's hard for people to be you know to allow other people to be the faces of websites because it sort of throws off that power dynamic a bit um so i think there's a lot of like politics in game sites that i sort of now understand a bit more after spending uh, some time in the industry um and uh yeah you can work in your favor or it can work against you that shit fascinates me the the, the concept of a lot of people come to a website like GameSpot, IGN, or they get a Game Informer, not because of the writers, just because of the name. They're used to the brand, but there's also this bigger group, and I think it's only getting bigger where it's the people. Like you mentioned, like there, there's a certain person you're going to that site for, and I think there is that power struggle between companies of like, we don't want to let this person get bigger than the brand. But a lot of times that person is bringing people directly to your brand. Like when I was really young i didn't really care who wrote the review on like you know egm one up anything like that i was like oh well this site gave this game that score and then as i started to get more into this stuff and really enjoy games media i realized oh jeff gertzman gave this game an eight or um andy mcnamara gave this game a six like you you start understanding the people and you follow the people even more than you might follow the site. And like Giant Bomb is the best example. Like I followed them to Giant Bomb because I like those people. Mm. I didn't care about the name of Giant Bomb. I cared about Ryan Davis and Jeff Gerstmann and stuff like that. And similar with, you look at Kind of Funny Now, maybe a modern example of these people left. A lot of people like Greg Miller and that's where they're going to go. Like it's, it is a weird dynamic that I don't think it's hard to put a actual metric on it when you are in the business side of that, of that company trying to keep it afloat. You look right. at the, the talent there and you're like, oh, we can just plug someone else into this show and it'll be just fine. But I do think there's an importance there that we don't fully, well, maybe you and me understand, but a lot of people who are making decisions don't fully understand. Um, I mean, Speaking of Greg Miller, he had kind of reached this apex at IGN, which was this place that he had always wanted to work. He always wanted to do that style of work. Right. And again, similar with you at GameSpot, I saw you as the, the face of this modern GameSpot as things were changing. But for you who were, was putting all these hours into it, who was working toward it and working toward it, and it was always this thing of like, I, I want to get to GameSpot. I want to keep going up in GameSpot. Once you did kind of hit this, and whether you saw yourself that way or not, but this face of GameSpot level, was it hard, not to get overly existential right now, was it hard to <laughs> keep that same drive and motivation once you had basically hit the goal you had set yourself up for, and now you're there, and now you're not, there's not a lot of room to move up in the company. Of course, your goals are always, I want to make better content. I want the stuff to be better. But I know when I started hitting a lot of these goals I had set for myself, I was in this weird spot of, 
okay, I've done this thing that I haven't really thought past this step yet. I hit the step <laughs> and I don't really know right. what's next. Did you have any of that internally of like, man, I did this thing I've always wanted to do and I'm doing well with it and it's successful. What's the next big milestone? Never at GameSpot, but but definitely now. So at GameSpot, that was... Uh, so like, so there's this thing, I forget what it was. It was a, there's a line in that apocalypse now um, uh, making off documentary where they talk about like the, the ego of... Of uh, of people in Hollywood, like every actor has an ego because they, they they must think they're the most perfect person in the world, and they do, and that's like the struggle that they have because they they think they think they're the most perfect thing, and they want to share themselves with the rest of the world, whether that be consciously or subconsciously. And there's definitely an element to that of people who step in front of the camera. So I definitely there's an element of me 100% that has an ego and and wants people to like my work and wants people to like me, but. To be completely honest, like most of the driving force that I had working at GameSpot wasn't about me. It was about trying to get GameSpot better again. Mm. <laughs> Not to fucking paraphrase, paraphrase Donald Trump or anything. But like <laughs> I fucking, I really, really wanted to like, what I saw as happening, and this is probably going to sound egotistical, was that I wanted to establish something at GameSpot that people liked and then drag everything up else, else up as well. Like really just like elevate everything. Not by any sort of influence that I could have on you know, today still there are loads of op-eds that get made on GameSpot. There were fucking no op-ed video op-eds on GameSpot when I started. Yeah. I had to, like, fight to make them happen, and then they trafficked, and they did well, and it was like, okay, we'll do this sort of stuff. And it was that type of thing where it was like, if we create this, if we create a foundation of work that, that actually sort of, I don't know, it it makes sense and people like it, then that will elevate everyone else up to it. So when I became the, the face or whatever of GameSpot, or became the host, let's say, um of a, of a lot of the stuff that to me didn't feel like the job was done that was just one of the things on the the one of the rungs on the ladder and the next thing to do was to was to do the really hard work of trying to get everything else up there um without actually having any power like i never managed anyone at gamespot in all the years i worked there um i think i've, I've that's something that i think you know plays into the politics thing a little bit about about how websites are run but um uh, to me, it felt like very much uh, I was trying to influence that website in a way that perhaps they just wanted me to be a host. And that was, I was never just a host. And the thing about, like, just to go back on what you were talking about before, um, like, this, this isn't anything new. It's not some sort of crazy idea, this sort of personality led thing. If you go back and watch sports from 30 years ago, like, there's a reason people still love those commentators or those pundits. There's a reason why people. You know, it's not just the world of YouTube where people follow YouTube channels now. They don't follow brands, you know. Jacksepticeye doesn't have a brand. He is his... That's him. Like, the, this was always the case with media. It's not anything new. The fucking Tonight Show. Like, <laughs> like these 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 things work based on the people who are hosting them. This it was It was never anything sort of new or crazy. So... I didn't ever feel like I was. I felt like I was doing something really normal. I was. It was just nobody ever did it in games. I was looking at television, essentially looking at people like Charlie Brooker and being like, "Oh, fucking, well, this, we, we're obviously not doing this in games yet. So let's do it here." Which is why I started doing the sort of op-ed stuff I was doing. Um, but in terms of reaching the sort of top of the ladder and not knowing where to go next, I definitely felt that for the past like four months or so at NoClip because we had such a successful first year, and I was kind of thinking. Well, what do we do now? Do we like employ a bunch of people and like we we have good funding, but we don't have that much good. We don't have that type of good funding. Um, 
So I've expanded a little bit out into more contractors and and trying to get bigger projects and stuff like that. And trying to keep momentum because momentum is really important for anything, especially crowdfunding. We always you always try and keep reinventing the wheel so that people will will keep uh, will keep funding and getting excited about it. But uh, I certainly in the past couple of months struggled to figure out what the future for for NoClip is. Um, I'm thankful that now I kind of have a fairly strong idea of what that is, and I'm still working out some of it, but. Um, yeah, that can be a big problem. It, it, like, I moved out to a house in the countryside. I married my best friend, and I made my dream company come true and got all of this, like, funding and adoration from people. And at a certain stage, you're like, well, what the fuck do you do next, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Become an astronaut? <laughs> like, I don't I don't have any other... <laughs> it's the obvious goals, so. next step, really. It's like right. what we always thought. It's like, well, Danny's definitely going to be an astronaut next, right? I'd leave the planet. Yeah, I've, I'm certainly not fit enough to do that job. I don't. If you do games media from the moon, though, that could be a really cool angle to this. Fucking send PewDiePie up there. <laughs> don't <laughs> fucking leave him That's there. That's the Kickstarter we're starting. Send PewDiePie yeah. to the moon. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. I would. Ass- you mentioned this, the funding you have, and it, I would assume there's a weird. I don't know if anxiety is the right word, but you were early into patreon at least pretty early compared to a lot of other people i wasn't so, greg miller early but i was yeah well i was, you're I was pretty early yeah. well enough that like i would assume you, you talked to a lot of people when you had an idea of all right here's kind of some financial goals you never really know what you're going to get until you flip the switch but you still have an idea of here's the money we need if you want to do this here's money we need if you want to do that is it weird having your 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 budget your monthly or yearly budget based on this fluid number where you never really know what's going to be and it's at the whim of not just the people who support you but also patreon is there a certain anxiety that comes along with you mentioned you buy a house you start this life out in maryland but you're like man this is not this set number i have every single year it can change is that hard um, for the record, I'm still renting a house. I didn't. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> I, I, when you start a company, the IRS or the no, no bank would touch you for, for buying a house for at least two sort of tax return years. So I'm, I'm in the wonderful world of renting for at least another year. Um, but, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, I guess same thing applies, right? I'm, I'm, I'm spending money every month on, on rent and, you know, health insurance for, you know, which is it ain't, ain't the cheapest thing in the world when you're, when you're self-employed, oh, yeah. um, all that sort of stuff. Um, like it's, I have a lot of like money anxiety. I always had. I lived like you know hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck from up until I started no nah, up until maybe six months before my last six months at Gamespot probably, and where I started to be able to properly save a bit of money. But so in a way, like the anxiety I always had over money that was very real. Like there was times where I didn't have money and I had to like sell things to buy food when i live to london and stuff oh, like yeah. that so like like i know what that feels like so i don't have that level of of money anxiety um i think the way i get over it is just having some sort of sound financial planning like when we launched no clip i had a three different budgets based on how much funding we may get and the amount that we got was over what i thought for the highest budget so I was sort of feeling okay then. So in my head, I think, look, if something happens, if there's a financial crash, we're going to be the first to go because this is, um, you know, uh, um, uh, entertainment spending. What's the word? Discretionary spending. Um, uh, if there's, you know, a drop in funding because people don't like Patreon anymore, like almost happened a while back or or anything else, then like we'll just, you know, sh- sh- I'll just spend less money here or do less projects this month or do whatever. So in a way, I kind of feel like, look, if we're in this for the long term, 
the longer I do this work up to a good quality and don't fuck about with the funding and just always produce work that people feel like they're getting good value for money for, then yeah. I don't really have anything to worry about. Or there's nothing I can do, right? There's nothing I can do about it. And the, the weird thing about Patreon is you can totally gain this stuff to like try and squeeze money out of people. Um, and we really don't on no clip. Like the the, I feel like the, the bonuses we give are respectful, but we don't hold anything back. Like we don't hold the docs back, or we don't like everything's free. Like even the extended interviews, they all go out free and open for yeah. everyone. Maybe there's a delay on it for certain patrons get them early, but we try not to be sleazy about anything. And hopefully, it's. I feel like eighty percent of the people who fund us just do it out of goodwill, and then the other twenty percent just wants a bit more content. Yeah, and I think you build that goodwill by not gating people or holding stuff off. So I think that's probably the best way to do it. Now that you have been doing these for uh, quite a bit and you have a lot of projects under your belt and on the YouTube channel, do you have a lot of developers reaching out directly to you to be like, hey, would you like to do a documentary or stay with us for a bit and see our process? Because I'm guessing in a lot of ways, it paints a positive light of these people. It's, it's really refreshing to see the honesty from bigger developers, smaller developers, and to get that behind closed doors look, it makes you in a certain way more interested for what they do in the future and invests you in those people. Have you had people reach out and be like, we would love this treatment? Yeah, I mean, the most of the projects were people reaching out to Really? Us. Yeah. The only one that really wasn't was, I mean, Rocket League, I I had to reach out to because we just started. Um, and the actual, the, the, the launch of Noclip, that trailer, um, was... Uh, uh, was the, I was playing Rocket League in the trailer, and the, the whole idea was to try and get them on board. <laughs> so, but in terms of like, what usually happens with with people contact us, and then you know, in the case of the the the, the Doom stuff, that was us talking. To, I I had a couple of people I knew at Bethesda, and they reached out and they were like, "We love what you're doing," and you know, well, let's have a chat. And like, what would you what would you want to do if you could pick anything? What would you want to do? And I said, I said, do. I said, Doom's the one you guys should be talking about, and and it's the one I'd love to do because I love the series and I love the game, and I think there's a really fascinating story about the the lineage of it, and yada yada yada. So, but the, they made the first reach there, and I, the same thing happened with Final Fantasy. Square reached out, Square US reached out, um, and uh, the Witcher stuff as well. I'm, I'm I know Martin Novinsky and a bunch of the guys, uh, Michal and 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 the folks on the PR team over at City Project. And we were sort of talking about it for a while. So most of this sort of stuff um, is it's either people reaching out explicitly who I don't know who they are, or it's just conversations with people that you have at GDC or E3 or, or something like that. The indie stuff, I had to hunt them all down. The yeah. John Blow, Derek Yu um, were, was because they don't, they can pick and choose when they want to do interviews. Right. And that's different because you're talking to like the creative director, not the PR person. They don't have the, like a team of people that's outwardly doing this sort of stuff all the time um but yeah it's been like super flattering and and we're like really respectful and i try uh, the one thing i hope is that whenever we leave one of these projects um everyone thinks we were very professional and respectful and i i hope and think that's the case and that those people all talk to their peers you know their marketing and pr departments all talk to each other as well and and now it's like we don't really have to explain anything anymore like at the start it was a whole thing about like you know, this isn't like, is this, is this, 
you know marketing work or is this like a website like yeah. what are you guys like <laughs> can we pay for your flights or are you do you want to like every every once in a while still i'll get an email from a company that's like can you send us a race for a documentary <laughs> <And> i'm like <laughs> i'm really sorry but we don't do we don't do paid work like even if like we've had ones before where people have like offered to like pay to to do something and we've done the project but been like okay so the way this works is that you don't pay us anything but also you have no say over what we make and they're kind of like uh oh yeah okay a lot of people like control over their shit totally yeah yeah so i mean that's especially with you know anyone who worked that's why it's funny like the thing that happened forever was that nobody knew who to talk to was was it the pr team who generally works with you know press or was it the marketing team who works with agencies and we are definitely we're definitely on the press side we're not an agency by any means we don't do external work at all i don't do any at all i i I don't take any money from the games industry in any fucking shape way or form yeah but uh but for a while it was kind of like well we are sort of like we we are like the press but we're also not like we're not like headline hunting like the press like we're kind of like we're like pbs (laughs) (laughs) or or we're or we're like uh we're like whoever makes planet Earth. we're like the bbc wing that makes planet earth yeah like we're 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 in it you can't buy us off but we're also not trying to make something inflammatory. We're trying to make it's, something. It's not that's an editorial like spin. It's it's more reflecting what that studio is rather than what you your opinion of that studio is. Right, and I mean it'll bleed in a bit. And yeah. obviously, like you know, if that's not to say that if there's some shit that went down that was bad or anything we don't cover it like we we tried to get into the the ugly parts of these stories as much as possible i think the final fantasy stuff was probably a good example of that um but uh yeah it's it's a funny sort of at the at, now i feel like people at least now they can go watch the videos and they're like oh that's what you do cool make us one of those and i'd be like i'm not making you anything i'm making them for my patrons i'm making them for four thousand people and everyone else is just a bonus my favorite part about all of these so far is just the honesty that's coming through because like you mentioned people there's a certain control people want over their product where they want a certain narrative out there but i haven't really felt that touch on there i feel like people are saying what happened and you don't expect that with a lot of projects you expect that people don't want to tell the ugly stories about how they had to restart or how this went wrong or this idea didn't work out i even on this podcast i've had developers on where just the pure honesty is like shocking to me maybe just because i had assumptions about how people are i mean has that been surprising mm. for you like do there's going to be certain things they can't talk about there's certain ndas there's publisher agreements that can't allow certain access certain things but the level of access you got and just the honesty from the developers has that been refreshing um i i don't think it shocked me i think it shocked a lot of other people <laughs> but i think I had this big problem with games coverage for years where I thought that they were doing developers a disservice. I thought that whenever... I thought developers were, like, a certain way, that all they ever did was talk in, like, business speak and that they never... They didn't really want to tell you anything about the game, but you sort of had to squeeze it out of them. And then, especially when I moved to the US and I started, like, covering E3, I realized, oh, no, it's not It's not that at all. It, it's just that the way that the press has been set up or the way that journalists or hosts think to talk to these people is is totally funneling them into that type of that type of uh, conversation and that actually if you, you can really have an authentic conversation with these people as long as they trust you and as long as you start to talk to them as peers and it's really difficult because it's hard to talk to people who are doing work that you don't understand as a peer 
And I think it's a really delicate tightrope of understanding enough, like really learning about people's jobs and what the, the role their job is and the history of work that they've done and things like that. And then also having an understanding of what you don't know and not assuming that you do know things, which I think is one of the things that games journalists do way too much and it turns off developers in an instant. And I think I I kind of, I'm lucky that I know about this sort of stuff a little bit because I was a web programmer for years and I had to work with clients and I understand the type of conversation that would bore me to teeth or make me feel cringy or make me feel like, why am I talking to, like I hate talking to this person about this and somebody who was on my level and was able to just chat about it. And what I think, there was a time when I worked at GameSpot where previews were basically like off the table. Like talking to developers never got views, so you, we didn't do them. And when that happened, I was like, oh, no, no, no. It's not that talking to developers doesn't get views. It's that the whole industry is talking to developers wrong. Yeah. And they did. In they the exact like, same way. Like it was like to- one oh. set way that never worked and never got anything worthwhile. Yeah, and like some people tried to get a bit more pally and it was like too much and some people were like super prescribed about their questions and it was just like silly. And I remember the first time I did E3 and this is going to sound a little bit like I'm blowing smoke up my own arse, but I, <laughs> I was really, really proud because I, I, I took it really seriously because I'd watched every E3 at, uh, as a GameSpot user. I had all the emblems for all the different stage shows and for the press conferences and I fucking ate that stuff up. And when I got the chance to host at an E3 conference i spent like days and days researching every single interview we had because the the interviews come in really late because it's unannounced game x so you don't know what the fuck your your most of your schedule is and then when i got it it was like just constantly like spent all night i never went out to parties i didn't i hosted the show and i went home back to my hotel and i fucking worked for hours just to make sure the next day and afterwards i'd get emails from developers saying that was the best interview i've ever had at e3 and it was my first e3 and i thought oh fuck it's i was right like people just aren't talking to them right so when i started noclip and people are like really surprised about all these authentic um interviews we've had it's just like i don't know how to tell people how to do it because it's it's essentially about like i think like communication and i think irish people by our nature we're really inquisitive we're, we're storytellers like the way our language works and the way our culture works is that we we tell a lot of like parables and stuff and the way we we explain things and we listen a lot and i think i'm not listening now i'm just fucking rambling so sorry about that but <laughs> but but we and i think that works and i also i will say as well i think the fact that i'm an irish guy as well kind of works like people are very i don't know um there's not much we don't have much like cultural baggage as i i feel and we're also like a really approachable kind of uh yeah. country so i think that also kind of works in my favor a bit um but i do think it's just a case of yeah i i, I don't think i did anything nor anything weird i just think i did it, something weird for our industry and the fact that it was weird is the weirdest part yeah no i couldn't agree more on that point especially the, the preview thing you mentioned is super interesting with a lot of those e3 stage shows if you don't put in the work to to get to know the person you're talking to and ask the right questions what you end up getting is that basically the stock same questions for developer after developer that really doesn't lead to anything it always ends with that goddamn like what platforms when's it coming out and it's the kind of questions where you're like i don't we, we that's not what we were looking for you're looking for something beyond that that maybe you don't need this massive understanding of game development to understand but th- there's the reason I started this podcast is because I'm curious about things. I'm curious about game development. I'm curious about games media. I'm curious about these things. And I want to take the time to understand that. And yeah, mm. it's not about 
buddying up with those people but i think if you do show them a certain respect and show them that this is stuff that you're fascinated in and be honest with that that's how you get the best responses that's how you get actual conversation that leads to things where you're like oh i had no idea about that and that's interesting and other people find interesting beyond the boring ass preview cycle we saw for the longest time that really didn't result in anything that was worthwhile and i do think people care about these conversations with developers they care about the stuff that if you love video games and you're fascinated into like at all and how they were made, like your conversations are perfect. It's exactly what people, maybe they didn't even know they wanted, but once they right. hear it, they're like, Oh my God, I had no idea. Like I was watching your horizon zero dawn documentary, just seeing these, these certain very early on, uh, these builds of these games. And it's stuff like right. that. where you are like, I've been playing games since I was five years old and I've never seen this style of access and what games look like beforehand. And I know, I, I work for a, a game developer now, and I remember going in two weeks before our first game was about to go, it was, it was about, to about to be um, gold, and I right. saw behind closed doors certain game development tools and got like a full conversation with my boss, who is the developer of Spec Ops Align and had worked on Fear awesome. and stuff like that. And, and, and like seeing those tools, I'm like, this is incredible, and this is super cool, and I never even knew I wanted to see this. And I think what Noclip does is it gives you that. I never knew I even wanted to see this level of access, but now I'm eating this shit up. And I think that is what we've been missing, and it, it, it's this style of you – this is maybe even more of a tangent, but there's a certain lack of understanding between developer and user. And I think a lot of the lack of respect and the angry Twitter stuff and why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that is – based in that lack of understanding of what it takes to make a game and i think the more we can communicate what it does take and what goes into that maybe there's more of a bridge there's more of a common ground and i'm not trying to be an idealist here but like i think a lot of the angry commenting is i don't know how games work i in my brain this is how it works you should be able to do this and i want this and i want that and the more we can educate people on that the more maybe that will dissipate yeah, I actually, I, I'd go one step further, and I think that the media actually created an antagonism where there didn't need to be one. I feel mm. like the in the the way in which that interviews went down, and the way in which most the the way in which like the games media, and I, and I'm not by look, I'm a fucking as I'm, I grew up in Ireland. I'm a I'm a fairly liberal guy, right? I'm I'm as much as it comes, so I'm not like an anti media like yeah. headhunter by or anything by any means. But I do feel like the modern media, in terms of the way um, a lot of uh, the reporting goes, in terms of its its necessity to to sort of stoke up conversation, which is another way of saying stoke up um, antagonism, goes has created a sort of an us versus them mentality, and I think. There's a re- you know the, some of the biggest reporting that goes out there is about leaks, right? So that's obviously that's an us versus them situation. I think the way that interviews, at, you know, press conferences and stuff was always about trying to get stuff out of developers as opposed to getting them to speak openly about about things, and that was what led to a lot of developers getting media trained and a lot of PR people going on stages instead of the developers themselves and and all this other stuff. So I feel like actually over a sort of good 15, 20 year period. Aside from people like, you know, our, our friends over at Giant Bomb who had sort of much more authentic conversations with people, a lot of the way that the mainstream gaming press was set up was it was in this very us versus them mentality. And like, we're, we're doing the work to get you the answers, players, you... Who, the answers you need from these developers who won't goddamn tell us all their secrets, <laughs> right? And, and I think what's happened over the past couple of years... I used to see it as a negative when I saw... Um, uh, studios like Ubisoft and 
kind of Activision to a, a lesser extent, um, doing a lot of this sort of in-house reporting because I thought, well, that's fucking propaganda, right? Like you need an independent press to be able to do the work to look at this stuff um, independently. And I, and I certainly still think that's the case. But what I think that a lot of that stuff ended up doing was was showing that, oh, actually when developers talk directly with their users that they get way better communities out of it. I mean, we're doing this documentary on Warframe right now and that was essentially the success story of that studio was, oh shit, we have to self-publish this because we're going to go bankrupt. We don't have anyone to do the PR for us or do the community stuff that we used to have when we went through a publisher. We better start doing it ourselves. And then it was through that that they ended up having an, a free-to-play game that's now five years old and one of the you know best you know probably one of the least toxic and one of the most sort of admirable gaming communities out there so i think you're right and i actually think in a way the way the games media was set up it actually sort of exacerbated that problem yeah and it's you look at ubisoft is one of my favorite studios to watch right now in terms of Mm. what they're doing to build communities and to take a game that maybe didn't have the most successful launch, but they continue to support it. They continue to communicate with the people who play it and it keeps growing. I mean, Rainbow Six Siege is one of the weirdest fucking things where I feel like that came out and it was like, oh, okay. Like that was, that seemed okay. We'll move on with life. And now it's bigger than ever right now, like two years later. And I think a lot of that is direct line to the community. I mean, I've had Eric Pope on here to talk about For Honor and that community and being able to successfully communicate that. And it's, games are in a really cool spot in Warframe, maybe actually even better than Siege is an example of this longer tale and this revival and this we, we think we think of games as services as this gross kind of idea where you're trying to siphon as much money as, from people as possible during this right. time. But with games like Warframe, with games like Rainbow Six Siege, it seems like there is this direct line communication between creator and user and it's a growing community and people give a shit way longer like that really fascinates me and i do think you're right there is this there was a certain transactional nature between press and publisher or developer where they, they're not really trying to have conversations about the game they're trying right. to get certain info and it did become antagonistic and not fun and it's, it's good to see i've been in the press the longest time so i'm not gonna like sit here and say <laughs> like, like shit on it but like i i totally understand that aspect of it and it, i think it's good that giant bomb waypoint people like kind of funny you at no clip there's this finally this conversation happening between people who are pseudo press or in that sort of region with actual developers and it's made me appreciate those people what they do that process more than ever i mean so hopefully that keeps going hopefully that is something that keeps happening with a lot of these different documentaries you're doing and a lot of what giant bomb does um especially you mentioned before doom and horizon which you'd consider big triple A games and you have done some indie discussions with Jonathan Blow with um, I think right. it was Frog Fractions. You had some sort of discussions at that, but when you're building out who you're going to talk to, you mentioned a lot of people come out to you. A lot of it's former context you've had from GameSpot. Do you kind of have anything in your head in terms of when you think of games, media or websites, you're always trying to get the most traffic possible. You're trying to do the stories that you think people will click as many times as possible. Are you worried about, essentially seo value of the projects you're doing are you listening to your patrons to what they want to look at i mean if you were to do this is a super random one a enslaved odyssey to the west right like documentary which that game did not sell well people probably don't really have this massive (laughs) it's really cult following but maybe you have this super big interest in knowing about that story is that worth 
your time and budget to do something like that? Or do you have to aim higher to something that has more broad appeal in order to satisfy the no-clip audience? That's that's a great question. It's definitely like accumulation of a bunch of different influences and sort of data points and 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 the sort of the feel for what the audience wants. So we we definitely take what patrons want uh, into account a lot. In fact, a lot of the games that we did do were based off of patron um, uh, 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 asking. Uh, the Witcher was one that came up all the time so eventually i was like okay we need to do something on the witcher in fact the final fantasy one was a suggestion from a, a patron that we met at san diego when we did the patron meetup during the rocket league shoot so awesome. like this stuff does come from the community organically um sometimes um other times it's me trying to you know break through and and have like a really big project like doom was obviously not one that people were necessarily asking for but one that i I was interested in and I knew it was a big game coming on up into the game of the year discussions that year. Um, and had a weird and, story. Like had a and weird had a weird story. Cycle. Totally. Which I think a lot of people had either didn't know about if they're too young or, or had kind of forgotten because the connective tissue between the cancelled Doom 4 and Doom 3 was kind of was strong but the tissue between 2016 and Doom 4 kind of wasn't it didn't seem like it seemed like most of the big figureheads it did had left at that stage but if you go a little deeper you realize actually like a lot of the people who worked on both games or, or people did work on both games so that one was for me but then when we came off that for instance you know, people were like, oh, it's a shame you didn't get John Romero for anything. So I was home in Ireland at Christmas and John Romero <laughs> just moved to Galway. So I was like, I called up Brenda and John and was like, can you do an interview? We were going to interview both of them, but then Brenda was sick. So we only ended up doing the interview with John. Um, and I've talked to Brenda since a couple of times. And next time I'm in Galway, we're going to uh, do a chat with her. But then after that, it was kind of like, okay, the one of the biggest important things I think with Noclip is that we constantly keep people guessing that the next uh, series is different in some manner. So the next one we did was like, was you know, Frog Fractions. Like if you talk about Enslaved not having a community for it, <laughs> fucking a free Flash game that came out four years earlier. Oh, that game was um, rad though. Right? So, but, but like that, there's an educated sort of jump there because jim crawford lives in oakland right and john blow lives in san francisco and so does Derek Yu. so like we can go and do these three indie games and also make this we made a sort of a sub video about or an umbrella video about sort of mystery in games but it was like relatively it wouldn't be the same as going to you know england to do enslaved because i think they're based in brighton i forget ninja theory yeah, somewhere in so. south of england like so that would obviously cost a lot of money whereas like me and my uh shooter jeremy um lived in you know i lived in oakland he lived in berkeley so we we just drew, we rented some places and we shot some interviews you know so and then that's why we went to japan for the next one because it's like oh we fucking did this weird thing but in our backyard about small games let's go tell a massive story in japan so it's always just sort of weighing up what's going on and trying to to do something interesting like the horizon dock was again it was the same as the doom thing it was like okay here's a surprisingly good game that came out this year and we're coming up to game media discussions where people are going to be looking back maybe horizon will be a good one to do but again like in terms of seo it's actually done incredibly well it's done like almost i think four hundred thousand uh, views and the watch time is incredibly high on it but like that was also a ps4 only game so like we didn't know if it was going to do any traffic if yeah. ps4 owners are on youtube looking at videos all the time so you know warframe's another one where it's like fucking warframe like most people are like what the fuck is warframe <laughs> except people who play warframe who are like oh yeah fuck yeah do it on warframe so 
like you know this crazy free-to-play game that's been in the steam top 10 for about five years and nobody knows why you know but it's it also it's a story about unreal tournament because digital extremes co-made that series with epic so it's a uh, it's it's just constantly trying to keep people on their toes and we have some really cool stuff coming up later in the year uh, which i can't talk about which is certainly gonna sort of make people go ooh, <laughs> and hopefully get more eyeballs on what we're doing is it warframe technically some sort of follow-up to dark sector in a sense did yeah. that studio actually like fucking glaive game that look um i have a weird soft spot for dark sector but that's also not <laughs> a good video game and i remember getting that game like two years late and playing the multiplayer and there were seven people online oh, like, wow. there was this one dude who was just roaming around with his glaive and fucking everyone up because all he did with <laughs> his life was play dark sector and it was I love it. people talk about going into call of duty late and getting owned this was like going up against this complete <laughs> expert at this game who from a mile away would just glaive you in the face. So I I have a weird fascination with Warframe just because of my also weird fascination with Dark Sector. A lot of what you've done has been telling the story of games that have either become successful or were successful. Horizon, Doom, uh, Warframe, that growth, Final Fantasy. Is there ever any interest in, let's say you had the opportunity to do a Duke Nukem Forever <laughs> Uh, documentary where you talk about what the hell happened with this thing do you think a publisher developer would at all be okay with you going into why something failed it's it's like i god i could just imagine sitting down with george broussard and randy pitcher <laughs> down telling that fucking that story um it's weird we get asked this like often and it's it's something that i i struggle with a bit because Every like every success story has like twelve failures in it. So a lot of the like, I mean, the Doom doc is essentially about them failing on Doom Four. Yeah. Uh, the Final Fantasy doc is them failing hard on a Realm Reborn and or on on the original Final Fantasy fourteen. And you know that first video is just about the failure, and then the second one's about them kind of reacting to the failure, and then only the third one is actually about a success story. So like it's it's kind of hard to tell like each every story needs some sort of like emotional arc you need to to have this is where we started this is the you know not to have the the three act structure in a documentary every time but but to have like this is where it all went wrong and then this is where we ended up and it's really hard to have this is where we ended up as a bad thing like it's 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 hard for people to to tell that story i think in the way that we shoot stuff retrospectively like if we were on their boots on the ground during like the development of mass effect andromeda that would be a really interesting maybe fly on the wall kind of thing but it's hard to sit people down and ask them to talk about stuff that went wrong after the fact um you don't get that same sort of transparency because blame is a really difficult thing. Either people are over or under blaming themselves or other people or people don't really know what went wrong or the reason it went wrong wasn't really their fault or like there's or it's something really boring, like the way the business structure was set up or the way when it was launched. And so I, I find it difficult. There's a good example of this is um there was a there's a four part series right now that's on Amazon. Um, I think it's called Race Driver, and it's about um, the uh, uh, McLaren Formula One team. And I'm a big Formula One fan. Yeah. So it's about the McLaren F1 team, the start of last season, um, 
starting uh, their season and it's the pre-season testing and they have a new driver Stoffel van Dorn and they have Fernando Alonso who's like three-time winner of the championship and they're going to put them in this car and what happened that year is that Honda's car was fucking terrible it was <laughs> or McLaren, the Honda engine was awful and McLaren did really really bad and this documentary is four episodes long and it absolutely looks like something that they were going to do for the entire season and just cut because it's and it's amazing to watch because the first four episodes are so transparent about everything that goes wrong and then it just fucking stops and that's kind of what happens when you do stories about negative stuff is that it's really hard to give it a sort of a satisfying like lesson or something from it so that's kind of why I've stepped away from them um a little bit and I mean if there is one that comes up that I can really th- that I think oh that's like a I can see that being a good story um then I'd do it, but honestly haven't. Like, what would I do in Mass Effect Andromeda? You just go interview oh a bunch God. of people who spent, like, years working on a game and are just sad about it. Yeah. Like, like, I don't want to fucking watch that. Yeah. I don't wanna, you know, so it's it's kind of hard. Like, if I'm sure there's one out there and I haven't thought about it, but it's difficult for me to... And Duke Nukem Forever is like... I, that might be interested in a, interesting in a weird, campy way because George Bassard is such an interesting character and, and all that stuff. That's probably a, as good as one as I can think of, actually. But it's it's hard, man. It's hard to really think about those. Yeah, so much. So many of the stories you mentioned before, there are those low moments. You're talking about the failure, but there's always that like Phoenix Rising moment at the end where they fucking figured it out or something good happened. And when you just have a... <laughs> And then everyone continued to be sad and people were laid off. Like, that's not <laughs> right. a good end to a documentary. I mean, like... It's hard. Sh- it, 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 like, if, it you, works if you're doing something sense. on war, like, if you're doing... Like, there's certain things that... There's certain, like, things where if you're... Te- stories can end sad and they can end tragic. And there's plenty of, 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 of nonfiction work out there that ends that way. But I think with something... And I don't want to say... The, I don't want to say trivial, but it's something like the work that we're doing about yeah. video game design i don't think that's the case we're actually working at the moment on a documentary about accessibility which i could see as more being you could you could end it that way because it's more sincere and it's more about human experience not about a product i think it's hard to get that level of sort of sadness out of you know a product even if people end up losing their jobs and so it just it i don't think it has the same sort of emotional levity that you can you can you can end it that way yeah, I think you're right. It's a weird balance, I would assume, with a lot of these different uh, projects. Do you have a dream project? Is there one that stands out that if you could just start working on it tomorrow, had full access? Is there a certain game or studio you'd want to cover in that way? Totally. There's two. And and one of them, we're sort of we're trying to figure out a way of doing it without their help, maybe, and then maybe afterwards asking for their help. Um, that one is, is, is something to do with Half-Life because Half-Life turns... Um, 20 years it came out in 98 so it turns 20 years old this November oh my god um, so I'd love to do something I'm trying to basically track down as many people associated with the project as possible who don't work at Valve anymore to see if we can do interviews and, and do something about it Um, uh, so I'd love to do that for Half-Life and Half-Life 2 and like everything that Valve has done I'm a huge fan of their work Um, and then the other one would be Rockstar and I, I to me I think it's they're the sort of they exemplify the sort of us versus them mentality that the press and games um, 
uh, developers had for years because they were the sort of whipping boys of of the mainstream press and also the video game press. You know, you do anything about any Rockstar game and it got loads of views, which then meant that every news story about Rockstar went up, whether or not it was bad, good or indifferent. Yeah. So I think that sort of made the Housers kind of disappear into their shells a bit. Um, I mean, the BBC made a fucking ridiculous, like, f- fucking non-fiction, <laughs> f- very much fictional uh, documentary series starring Daniel Radcliffe about about them um God, but i forgot I, about that That's yeah it's crazy it's fucking weird I, I haven't watched it all i've only watched bits of it and i, I actually I, I turned i just could it cringed me so much that i couldn't keep watching it yeah um so I, i'll eventually get around to it i'm sure but but they were also responsible for making like the best open world games for like 15 years so yeah. like it is kind of insane that no one's been able to really sit down and talk to them about it so that's for me that would be a dream project whether it be a, a red dead or or a grand theft auto or whatever it was retrospective whatever um I think that would be really cool. I don't even care if I do it. I just want somebody to to get access and or get them or do it themselves. Yeah. I'm all about I'm all about studios uh, doing more like the dev diary stuff used to be really bad, but I think studios have gotten better at figuring out like how to how to do in-house programming and I'm all for them doing that because more people doing this stuff the better man it's it's a form of game preservation in a way and I think the more of it that exists uh, uh it's better for everyone. Yeah, and I mean speaking of games that became successful over time grand theft auto online is now like the biggest shit that's changed the way it seems like they're looking at game development so i would like to know that story their expectations going in and how they managed this uh last last thing danny uh, where can people find you on social media how can they support you and what are you working on now that you can actually talk about <laughs> um uh thanks so much first of all for having me on it was absolutely of lovely chat i love chatting to somebody about this stuff who especially has experience working in media because <laughs> you can kind of get you can kind of get a little bit deeper you know what I mean? yeah um i'm danny o'dwyer on twitter that's uh hard to spell so just try it out uh, <laughs> uh, at uh, no clip video is our uh, channel on youtube and also our twitter account um, you can watch all the documentaries for absolutely free and um, if you feel like throwing us a couple of bucks a month um, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash no clip but it's not a prerequisite for for uh, for watching this stuff at all um we're working on a bunch of programs at the moment we've got i'm currently editing our warframe documentary which we are aiming to get up on monday the 18th sorry 19th of this month of march um so hopefully that'll be up that's the week of gdc um it'll be one video about an hour long let's say um all about the history of digital extremes who worked on unreal tournament and dark sector like you said um, and it explores the how warframe how the original dark sector or was what warframe ended up being um, and how much it had to change under publisher pressure um, we're also working on some other sort of smaller projects um we've got a a really cool big one on um accessibility which we've been doing some shooting for already and we're doing um uh, some shoots later on this month with the folks at able gamers um around that and then we're working on a bunch of secret stuff which you'll figure out you'll see later in the year we can't talk about it yet sadly no, that's all right. Secrets are okay. Uh, yeah. Danny, thanks so much for doing this. When I first started this podcast, you were one of the people on my list of like, I would really like to talk to Danny O'Dwyer about all this shit because I've, like I mentioned earlier, been watching what you've been doing for a long time, appreciated all the different shows from, you know, the point to dancers, let's say. And I <laughs> I think what you do right now with Noclip is important. I think it's cool. And like we talked about earlier, you're getting people in development to talk in a way that I've always wanted, and I think a lot of people maybe didn't even realize they know they wanted because they were used to the regular preview coverage, but I think this is the best way to communicate these stories, to learn about development, and hopefully eventually kind of give 
quote-unquote gamers an understanding of what actually goes into a video game and a greater appreciation for that so thanks so much for what you do and yeah again thanks for coming on and spending the time not at all man an honor to talk to another game spotter as well uh, so anytime <laughs> and great work on this podcast dude i I've, it's great to work and chat to people who are good at the work that they do and i think you know i'm sorry it took so long to get on here i have a really weird schedule and i wanted to make sure i was in the i had as good a sort of a brain space as possible to <laughs> talk authentically even if my my tooth and, and pain meds are probably we survived the drug podcast we i know did it. we did we made it all the way through and i think we probably you know i'm gonna listen to this back and it's gonna be like you know when you're drunk and you think everything you said was funny and great and right. you go back and you're like, oh, I was just awful. Like, that's the worst <laughs> shit ever. Oh, fuck it out. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. It's It, it means a lot coming from you. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.